to the Smart Connector podcast, which looks at the power of connection in business and life. Featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors, we offer tips and advice to build your impact, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons, and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Welcome to the Smart Connector podcast, and I have a wonderful guy all the way from Marin County in California, and it's Nathan Beckford. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks for having me, Jane. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Yeah, so we're going to talk about how startups can raise capital through software, content, and processes. And Nathan is an absolute expert in this because he's the CEO of Foundersuite.com, which is a venture-backed company that makes the leading investor CRM and investor-updated tools for startups raising capital. So Nathan helps startups raise capital through software content and processes. And since launching in March of 2016, startups using his platform have raised over $3 billion in seed and venture capital. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really, really impressed. Now, prior to starting Founder Suite, he spent 10 years working with over 150 startups as an interim CEO, CFO, uh, business developer, and advisor. And he has an MBA in entrepreneurship, a BSc in finance, and he's a chartered financial analyst. So you really know your numbers, don't you, Nathan? I guess so. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So it's great to have you here. So we're going to talk about this whole issue of startups raising capital. And first of all, let's talk about why a startup would want to raise capital, because a lot of people think I've just got to bootstrap everything and just get past that painful early stage. So what's the main reason why a startup would want to raise capital? Yeah. And I want to go on record saying I love bootstrapped startups. I love startups that can be grown and built, you know, without raising capital. There's a lot of downside to raising capital, which we can talk about if we want to. You're giving up control and ownership and a lot of stuff when you raise capital. But if you have a startup that it has high growth potential, that's going to scale and hopefully become a billion dollar company, you probably can't bootstrap that. It'd be hard. It's There are a few companies out there that have been self-finance, but generally you need outside capital, right? You've got to hire more people. You've got to pay for marketing. You've got to do all the good stuff that goes into building and scaling a uh, company. So we look for outside sources of capital that can be angels, venture capital firms. In some cases, it can be debt lenders and, and also private equity. But in general, we're talking about raising capital from investors. So is it just tech companies that need to raise capital or is it any kind of a business, Nathan? It's it's any kind of business that kind of what I mentioned is scalable. And that excludes a lot of businesses. I mean, I think that can include something like fashion or clothing or even food products, but that probably ex- excludes services businesses. If you've got a, a house cleaning business or IT services or corner store type of businesses, those are harder to scale effectively and therefore also hard to raise capital for. 
Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So in terms of if you were to do a chart and say the easiest businesses to raise capital for are and the hardest businesses to raise capital for are, and then there's, you know, something in between. If you were to rate those from, say, one to five, what would be number five in terms of the easiest and number one in terms of the hardest? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that's a fun exercise. So we'll just go from one. So one would be your mom and pop businesses, whatever that means. That could be a lawn and garden care business or a corner, corner store. Moving up from that, all still also hard, like I mentioned, services businesses where you really need to grow the business. You need to add more humans. Maybe you're selling hourly services that could be flooring installers or whatever it means. Those are hard to scale because you've got to grow your your staff. Now, getting into the more scalable businesses are obviously things like physical products that you can, you know, crank up the manufacturing on, mm-hmm. food products, clothing, devices, whatever it may be, electronics. And then kind of even going further up in what is scalable and fundable are, of course, software, right? So think about software that's infinitely scalable. Um, yeah. Yes, you've yeah. got to increase your your servers and and of course, support staff, technical support staff. But Software is even like more scalable than products or physical products because it's basically infinitely. And I guess in the same category, you have maybe just slightly below software, which I would say is the five software is life sciences and biotech. Those are huge, rich markets. Uh Probably, yeah, more scalable than physical device products, but like a little bit less scalable than, than software, but still very profitable, which of course is another great thing when you're out raising money. Well, that's really, really fascinating. Now, I'm interested in your comment about service-based businesses because, you know, some of my audience have training businesses or coaching Mm -hmm. businesses or whatever. And of course, a lot of them are looking to take those businesses online and perhaps scale them through training programs and so on. Are those kind of businesses investable or is there an issue with them? So... (laughs) The businesses, like let's take a, let me think of a simple services business, like an accounting firm, right? To grow your accounting firm, you've got to hire more accountants. And so you've got to be paying them that hourly staff. And that's, that's a challenge. I would say personal training businesses are, are maybe in the same category, coaching probably in the same category. Now, what you do see getting funded are places that are creating marketplaces for those professionals. You've seen that in personal training. There are a number of websites out there that are kind of building. They're not hiring personal trainers, but they're creating a market between consumers who want training and individual personal trainers. You're seeing that even in like mental wellness and healthcare, you know, you're seeing some of these markets emerge that are are, are creating that. So I think those are scalable. So it kind of depends on your exact business model and flavor that you're thinking about doing. Mm. Very interesting. So is this really to do with leverage, leveraging technology? Absolutely. Even sure. if it's a service. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think about, again, kind of going back to the markets, the marketplace businesses, they might be focused on a service. There are some great markets out there like Fiverr.com. If you've ever used mm-hmm. Fiverr.com to hire people to proofread things or, you know, write some copy or design a flyer for you or stuff like that. It's the technology element that it's helping create this efficient market, right? So it's not a a real manual process. 
definitely. Absolutely, because I guess the thing about Fiverr.com and also Airbnb and Uber and so on is that they're not actually increasing headcount or hiring people, really, are they? They're just putting people together. They're connectors, really, right. aren't they? Yep. That's, yep. that's the interesting thing, isn't it? And those are very scalable, right? Because Airbnb right. still does have a large staff nowadays, but in proportion to how many consumers and hosts are using the platform, it's a tiny, tiny staff, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and of course, Nathan, you've got a very, very strong financial background. You will always be putting on your financial lens, I'm sure, when you're looking at businesses. So what is it that investors typically look for in terms of actually, yeah, this is something that I'm really excited about? Yeah, this goes into kind of the category of like what should entrepreneurs be pitching and conversely, what are investors interested in? You know, when I'm approaching investors to raise capital for my business, I typically would put together a financial forecast, a financial plan. If I'm raising a million dollars, I want to articulate how I'm going to spend that money. And yeah. I'm going to hopefully put together a, a financial forecast or spreadsheet showing what this business looks like at scale, right? What does it look like over the next two to five years as this yeah. thing scales up? How much money does it throw up? The other thing I really focus on are kind of what, what we call the unit economics. These are like a per customer basis. So how much does it cost to acquire a single customer? How much, what's our lifetime value? How much can we, how much revenue can we generate from a single customer? What's the payback period on that, right? Does it does it cost me $200 to acquire a customer and the lifetime value is $1,000 and the payback period is two months so I can actually recoup my you know marketing expense pretty quickly? Things like that are important to investors because then they can see, hey, this business, I can pour in money. It's like pouring yeah. gasoline on the fire and this thing is going to grow. That's exciting to investors, right? So- Kind of the overall business model forecast, but also the on the per unit economics really are things investors care about on the financial side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you're in Marin County, which is in Northern California. And we were having a chat beforehand, Nathan, because my sister lived in Palo Alto, which is obviously the heart of Silicon Valley. So this is the place where it's the home of Google, Facebook, all of those kind of amazing tech companies, it's a big, big hub, isn't it, for investors mm-hmm. and for investment. And I think possibly maybe a bit more forward thinking than some companies in, in Europe. So I feel as though there's a lot of innovation that's happening over there. And are you seeing any particular trends that you think would be useful perhaps for some of our global audience, some of our European audience that you think, actually, you know what, this has been happening recently and this is new. Oh, that's good because there are always trends. Some of them mm-hmm. flash out pretty quickly or burn out pretty quickly and others others persist. And it's always been hard for me. I think it's hard for everyone to figure out which is which, right? Right now, yeah. there's a lot of buzz about kind of the the web three. So kind of the next iteration of the web, the metaverse, which, you know, even Facebook, right, rebranded themselves as meta. They've changed their name to meta because they're thinking that's the future. There's a lot of buzz around like crypto, both 
currency and block blockchain stuff and companies built yeah. on that and and even things like nfts or non-fungible yeah. tokens now some of these honestly like nfts i still have a huge skeptical a big question mark around them. I'm like, I get it. I kind of, I mostly, I understand it, but I don't really get it. Right. So <laughs> is that something that's going to be a flash in the pan and, and people will laugh back on that? Do you remember that NFT boom five years ago that turned into a bust <laughs> or is it the future? It's hard to predict that, but those are some of the things that investors are chattering about at the, at the moment. Of course, there's always just a healthy demand or healthy growth in like B2B SaaS software as a service. So software right. sold online as subscription and you're seeing that invade, I don't know if that's the right word, invade lots of different industries, right? Even Founder Suite is kind of building SaaS for this very niche vertical, which is fundraising. So you're seeing SaaS, SaaS for dentists, SaaS for hair salons, has all kinds of stuff like that, which I think there's still a lot of opportunity to explore yeah yeah so i mean some of my audience will be right up on what SaaS is obviously software as a as a service and also some of the other things that we've talked about but for those who aren't um i mean let's just talk about that sort of opportunity and really in the context of what you're doing with Founder Suite. So what exactly is software as a service? And I'm, I'm asking this question, not because I don't know, but because some of my audience won't, won't necessarily be familiar with that. And then let's go on to talk about Founder Suite and what Founder Suite actually does. Sure. Yeah. Software as a service is, is pretty simple, right? I mean, if you think back to how software used to be delivered to people like you probably remember you would get a a cd-rom which you would stick in the side of your computer and that would download the software onto your computer and you would run that software on your computer think of like i don't know if you have this in the uk but like TurboTax. it's a software program to help you file your taxes right you used to get that on an actual physical disc which you would then put onto your computer. Or even before that, it was floppy disk. You know, it's how far back do we want to go? Yeah. Now, all SaaS is, or software as a subscription is, instead of having it done like that, it's now all in the browser. And so you would go to, you know, TurboTax, for example, and do it all in the browser online. There's nothing being stored on your local device. So the data is stored in the cloud or, or in the network, and the software is running in the cloud, right? So... And that's the same with Founder Suite, right? We, we've never produced software that you install to your computer. It's all done in the cloud. You go to foundersuite.com, log in, and you run everything through, through the browser, basically. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that there is an issue with customer service with some of these SaaS platforms? Because I've noticed, for example, in the financial services space that sometimes it's really, really hard to actually do this kind of DIY thing that you're expected to do as a consumer. I mean, do you think that software as a service is not doing enough for consumers or do you think that that is just simply a customer service issue and that customer service is never going to go away and it is really just a challenge for those kind of businesses to to make themselves consumer friendly? Yeah, gosh, that's, that's a good question. I think it's been a blessing and a curse in many ways on the customer service perspective, 
right? I don't go into my bank anymore or very once yeah. every three years do I ever step foot into my bank. I was on Bank of America's website just yesterday trying to identify a certain transaction and I couldn't figure out what this thing was. And I clicked the support chat thing, which says, sorry, something went wrong. No one's available. And it's like, this is terrible, right? Like there's no way to get any support on this at all. And this is a big bank that I have all my money. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. It's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd now. So you're missing. So, but what are we giving up? We're, we're missing the opportunity to easily go into the branch and communicate with someone to help you. But at the same time, think of all the convenience that having it online has provided me. I can pay all my bills super quickly. I'm not physically writing checks and mailing off envelopes anymore. You know, I can transfer money between accounts really easy. So, you know, it's one of these like damned if you do, damned if you don't questions, right? It's, I think it's all made our lives pretty efficient, but the actual support piece. Now, now good companies are good and we try and do this. We're, we're not anywhere near perfect, but good Trump companies try and make the software as easy to use as possible, right? As kind of dummy proof as possible. So it's not, so you can't screw it up very well. That's good. And, and ideally has easy like training and tutorials if you do need to get some help and or you get stuck and need to figure stuff out. Now that stuff is easier said than done, right? Even a, any software platform, you've got to think of all the edge cases and stuff like that. And it's hard, it's, it's impossible to, to factor in all the things people are going to do with your platform. And, but you know, I, I think it's, I don't know. I feel like we, the gains have outweighed the negatives, even though we've lost some of that human touch. So there's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think as a marketer, and I do talk about this quite a lot, I think that whole customer experience thing is a lot to do with reputation, right? So reputation is also the same as brand, you know, so your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Right. And that goes for these the, these businesses that are representing themselves online, of course, which most businesses are these days. But I think this thing about customer experience, I think one of the reasons why Amazon has been as successful as, as it has is just simply because it is just so consumer friendly, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It just, it really absolutely prioritizes the customer. And I just find it kind of interesting when, when I obviously, as all of us do, we come up against different experiences, shall we say, online. And because we've all got used to just the way that the marketplace is evolving, that sometimes when we come across websites or, or apps or whatever that are, that are very clunky and they don't actually give us the opportunity to connect in the right way or learn how to do things properly, it really stands out, doesn't it? Yes. And I want to Add on to that, because I think there's a great opportunity, especially if you're an entrepreneur or a startup, you can really win the love of your customers and stand out by providing better than average customer service. Like it's amazing yeah. how that can totally set you apart. Even, and we, we don't always, again, get this perfect, but we, tr we've got compliments from our users. We're still small, but we're like very responsive in the chats. We're you know, make it easy if you need to cancel or something, make it easy to do that stuff. And people are like, wow, I do. They're impressed by it. And it gives them a warm, fuzzy feeling. And you hear, and we're still small, but you hear stories like that at like Zappos and things like that, where they built this 
brand around excellent customer service, which is so rare nowadays that it can be a huge like brand boost for you if you actually can do it, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's I mean I'm really into these concepts of red ocean and blue ocean and purple goldfish and so on, and you know giving little unexpected extras. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So Nathan, tell us what inspired you to actually start uh, Founder Suite. Yeah, I was. I'll go back a little while. I was originally working in investment banking. So I was helping companies raise capital, later stage rounds, meaning larger, larger startups. So not early stage stuff. And then I, I went off on my own and did it for early stage startups for about a decade. So I was helping companies raise their seed and series A rounds of capital. And then just had this idea one day, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't have any great ideas. And then one day the light bulb went off like, hey, I know how to raise capital for companies. We're still doing a lot of the work in using spreadsheets and kind of old fashioned tools, so to speak. Why don't yeah. I build software for this? It was just like a very gradual light bulb. It wasn't this flash. It was like a dim light bulb that slowly got brighter. <laughs> and and that's where it started. We started as a little side a little side project. So still helping companies raise capital and then taking some of the revenue, you know, generating and and feeding it to some engineers in Poland to build the first minimal viable product or MVP first draft basically. And from there it just grew and got slowly better and better. And and then we turn it into its own company and, you know, that became the full-time focus basically. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's really, really exciting that founders, they can just go there to the platform and they can, you know, upload their pitch deck. And that's an amazing thing that they, that they can do. So can you talk about some of the case studies, Nathan, that you've, people that you've helped raise funding? Because I'm sure everybody would be very inspired by that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've had oh i mean there's a few thousand here and it's hard to like pick my favorites or my it's like picking your favorite kid or something like that when you've had um you know but interesting stuff like all across the spectrum we have people solving environmental issues we had we had a guy on yesterday and he actually came on our podcast but he's an active customer who is he was a professional video gamer. This is a career. Yeah. And, but he found it very hard to like capture his content from games and then put it out to his social network. So he built, built a platform just for capturing better. Co- he's basically what he's doing is enabling the next generation of youth to become professional video game players. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if this is good or bad for the world in, in, in the you know in the long-term <laughs> picture, if that's where our best minds are going towards being professional video game players, but whatever. But it's pretty interesting. And, and he's been pretty happy with the platform. And he just raised, I think about almost $4 million. Um, wow. Yeah, and it's, it's just exciting to see these stories. And we get, you know, it's just all kinds of interesting businesses on the platform. That's, that's, what's kind of fun to me, a huge spectrum, huge panoply. So it's fun. 
Yeah, I think I think this whole thing about video games is kind of interesting. I was actually watching a TV program by a UK, I say he's an English broadcaster called Louis Theroux. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but I was watching a program of his the other night about these kind of crazy guys in America called America First. Mm. And um, they're all gamers and they're all like really, really young kids. But because they've been, most of the time, they've been united through this game called Fortnite. And so they're all, they're they're slightly strange. (laughs) I find them slightly strange. They're they're what you call incels. I don't know if you've never heard of that. But anyway, but basically because they've kind of grown up with gaming, they're very, very technically orientated. And so the live streaming and the social media and all of that is like falling off a log to them. So they've become incredibly powerful and influential very, very quickly, even though they're just really completely crazy. And uh, I think they are anyway. So I think this whole thing about kind of gaming and the younger generation and so on, I mean, it really is the future, isn't it? It is. It's a little scary. I've got kids. Scary, uh, yeah. And they're just, they're in this world called Roblox, which is one of these virtual worlds. They're in there all the time and they meet their friends in there. They meet their physical, like actual friends from school in there and play games together and do who knows what. <laughs> I don't, it's funny because I don't think Roblox itself is actually a shooter game. I think okay. I see them in there and they're like trading, they're trading things, which maybe is good. Maybe they're learning how to trade and be, they'll be all future financial traders or something like that. Um, <laughs> but they're wearing these elaborate costumes and, you know, it's like a giant masquerade ball for eight, eight to 11 year olds. But anyway, different world, different world. Yeah, it it really is. It really is. So before founders can engage with Founder Suite, what is it that they have to do first in terms of actually getting their house in order, as it were? Yeah, well, so so there are no requirements to sign up for Founder Suite. I mean, it's basically dropping your email in and you're dropped in. But I think to, to the broader question of what you have to do to be ready to raise capital. Yeah, I mean, obviously you need to be a corporation or whatever the UK equivalent is because you're basically selling shares of your company. So if you're not a corporation, you don't have shares to sell. That's obvious or should be pretty obvious. I think you also, a little bit more more intangible is you really have to have some momentum. You have, have to have something going on with your business. It has to be it doesn't mean you're doing $5 million in revenue right out the gate, but you have to have some users, some customers, some people paying attention to you, giving you their attention, giving you their credit cards, if that's appropriate, and ideally coming back and using you more and talking about you to their friends and things like that, right? I mean, there's something you can go to investors and say, hey, look, I launched this. It's working. It's still small, but it's working. I want to raise money and scale this thing up and really yeah. make the, the category killer, right? You have to have, and this is, I've said this on, on other shows, but I think it's just so important. The thing that drives me crazy and that's an immediate failure is when I get entrepreneurs who are like, if I had some capital, then I could do X, Y, Z. I can't do anything until I get the capital. If I had capital, then I can do stuff. That's automatically like a failure mindset because that's just not how entrepreneurs that's not how entrepreneurship works, right? You got to get it going on your on your own, get the wheel, the flywheel in motion 
before investors are going to care. It's simply the way it is. And not everyone likes to hear that. <laughs> no, yeah. no, but I, I totally get it because it is very much a, a mindset thing. And if you're going to be passionate, if you're passionate about your business, then you're going to do it anyway, right? And I think, I, I guess, from yes. an investor's perspective, they want to feel that passion, don't they? And also, isn't entrepreneurship all about navigating obstacles and coming out the other side? And so I would imagine that I certainly, I mean, I, I haven't invested in businesses. I've done a little bit of other real estate investment and so on. But I, I really understand the mindset of an investor. And I think that for me, if I was to invest in businesses, I would definitely be looking for that passion. But I yep. would also be looking for that ability to navigate the challenges and to actually see them as opportunities rather than obstacles, because I think that is the difference between a winning and a failing mindset. I don't know whether you agree with that. I do. I do. Put yourselves, if you're thinking about raising capital, try and put yourselves in the shoes of an investor, right? Yeah. As an investor, you, you want to be putting your money behind someone who gives you the impression they're going to break down any wall. They're unstoppable. They're going to break down any wall and they've already yeah. overcome some challenges to get to where they are now. And they just have, they're like, you know, a steamroller and you can pick up that energy that they're going to just do whatever it takes to make this thing a success. So that's who you want to back as an investor. And so as a founder, you need to kind of demonstrate that passion and that resilience and all the other stuff. The other great thing, I mean, the best, the best kind of, there's an imbalance when you're asking someone for money or you're kind of begging in some ways but it doesn't have to be like that. Like the best, the best founders give off this impression or this vibe that this is going to happen with or without you, you being the investor, this, yeah. this company is going to happen with or without you. We'd love to have you join and help us scale, but I'm not dependent on you, right? This is going to happen. Yeah. So, and, and frankly, turn that even further, like yeah. you will actually be lucky to get in on this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, that's that's totally. the vibe you should feel. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of marketing 101 because people people actually hate to be sold to, but they love to buy, right? So if you can behave like a high status buyer in any situation rather than a low status seller, then you've got people's attention, right? Mm-hmm. And and you can't fake it. I mean, you, I don't I'm not saying you should put on a big bravado and act flashy when you don't really have any there. I mean, you have to kind of earn that momentum and that whatever the word is, bravado, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. But once you get the business going, I mean, that's kind of, if you think about it almost chronologically, like you've got to hustle to get things in motion. Once you get things in motion, hopefully that motion is picking up momentum on its own. And investors are going to pick, take notice of that eventually. Or when you do reach out to investors, you know, you'll, you'll have that sort of momentum where the the train is already in motion, the snowballs rolling down the hill, whatever metaphor you want to use. Yeah. So, so do you think investors buy people? Do they buy people or do they buy something else? It, it, definitely buy people. I think there's, there is some different answers to that depending on what stage you're at. Mm -hmm. At the earliest stages when, when it's, you know, what we call pre-seed or seed rounds or angel rounds, it's, mm -hmm. It's, I would say, if you did a pie chart, right, it's like 50% people, no, maybe even 75% people, 25% vision. What's the big vision here? 
as you get to later stages, Series A, now it becomes a little bit more about, okay, let's see your metrics. Let's see what you've accomplished. Let's see your financials. And then at even later stages, Series B, Series C, as you're raising later stage, long, larger rounds, it becomes almost entirely about the financials, right? The people still important, of course, but now it's 75% financials and 25% people. So it kind of evolves yeah. over time. That's very interesting. And, and and I guess in the beginning, obviously, the business is going to be a lot smaller. So therefore, the influence that the leaders or the founders will have is going to be huge. Whereas I suppose, as you said, when you get to you know series B or C, then really an organization has been built, hasn't it? Yeah. And Right. And it's how well that organization and those systems and those processes and so on actually work in order to deliver on the objectives that investors will be looking at. I'm thinking, not that I've been there myself, but I would yep. imagine. Is that right? Totally. totally. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what advice would you have for somebody who has a great idea Let's say they've got an idea for a software as a service product um, that revolves around their own wisdom and experience. Perhaps they're, you know, develop some expertise in a particular area or sector or whatever, but they're just not sure what to do next. So what would be your kind of two or three nuggets of advice that you would give them, Nathan? Yeah, I, and I'll actually tell a quick story. I mean, like when I had this idea for software for raising capital, I immediately just started taking my savings and paying, like I mentioned, paying these Polish engineers to build a version of this so I could have some other. That was actually probably a mistake. I mean, I would think I would before spending like, I I forget what my first rough product was. Maybe it was like 50,000 or $70,000, something like that. I mean, it was not not cheap, but not, you know, all the money in the world. But anyway, what I probably would have first done is, you know, got someone on Fiverr, got a, a local uh, design student from the, the university to help me create some mock-ups of what I'm thinking, some kind yeah. of product screens, and then go out and and talk to a hundred potential customers, people, you know, uh-huh. and you've got a hustle to identify who, where would I find customers? Sometimes people will put up a landing page using like blog software and run some Google ads to drive people to a form. Right. I mean, or, you know, better going out and actually finding people in the real world and and sitting down with your designs and talking to them or doing this over zoom and just kind of understanding like, Hey, I think I have a problem here that I think you're facing. Does this, what does my idea make sense to you? Does it look like I'm solving your problem would you actually pay for this? <laughs> yeah. You know, if I build it? And, and you do that, the more customer research you do and customer validation you do, the better you're going to have a feel. Okay, should I now take that $50,000 and hire some engineers to build up a version of this and, and then go out? Um, so, you know, spending, I guess the short answer to that question is spending six months or so really doing customer research and customer validation and then start to build. And then once you've built and you've got it live and people are actually using it, then, you know, really starting to think about, okay, should I go raise money now? Can I go, you know, could I bootstrap this or should I go talk to investors? And, you know, the next step there would be really identifying the right investors, people who invest in your space, who invest in SaaS and software as a service, who 
maybe if you're doing, let's say you're doing SaaS for real estate, right? You know, real estate, maybe yeah. going out and your, your investor list might be kind of a, a matrix of people who invest in software as a service and people who are real estate investors. Maybe they're also customers, right? So sometimes that's a good investor base as well. So that's kind of how I would start the first year of my life, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose in a way people get impatient, don't they? And I think mm-hmm. maybe the reason why people, they, they go ahead and they start producing stuff or building stuff straight away is because they just feel the itch, don't they? So is what you're saying kind of be patient and actually do that on the ground research validation testing so what do you think nathan is is it because people get the itch yes and i'm 100 percent guilty of that myself yeah. i i have this idea i want to like do it now you know and, and that's actually a good a good attitude in general do it now you know move fast do it now but i know i mean i i know Personally speaking, we spent basically threw away all the code we wrote for that first iteration. Like, fortunately, there was enough in there that was useful that, you know, we could kind of build a business around. But I could have saved a lot of time and money by doing the research first. And it's exactly like, you know, you have an idea for a startup. You want to see it in the market. You want to see it come to life tomorrow. And that's hard. That's hard not to to take that impulse. (laughs) Well, it is. Is absolutely because because I think you know we all get very enthusiastic about our ideas and our businesses, and we want to we want to make it happen, don't we? I mean, it's only natural in a way. So, you know, taking our time and actually being patient about that phase where we're not really making any money. You know, we're just going out there and talking to people, and it feels like nothing's really happening. It really does take some patience, doesn't it? And some a long-term perspective in a way, doesn't it? It does. And, but now I want to completely go the other way. I, when I was okay. working, when I was consulting in startups, I remember several times where I had clients that were what I would call were afraid to launch. They were okay. drag and, you know, and that's another failure. Like oh. launching right too quickly is probably a bad thing, but I'd say even worse. And I, and I remember these guys, they just... <laughs> They felt they had to keep adding more bells and whistles. They kept, had to, you know, adding more features until they could go live and launch. And they yeah. built up the launch too too big that it was just, you know, they had to have everything perfect. And that's that's also, and the thing eventually usually just dies because it's never going to be perfect. You know, even six years into it, Founder Street's not perfect. You know, there's all, all, all stuff we need to improve and work on. So don't wait too long is really the, <laughs> the other answer. Get out there. Yeah. I think that's really, really powerful, actually, because I know exactly what you mean about. And I think in a way it's a personality trait. Some people are just tweakers and perfectionists, aren't they? And yeah. some people are action takers. And I tend to be, I'm an action taker. So I'm the kind of person that will go out there and I'll do it, whatever. But sometimes I will be the one that moves too hastily and just, you know, does the first thing. But I also am very aware of the tweakers and the perfectionists. And as you said, that is not really a good set of characteristics for somebody, for an entrepreneur, really, is it? That's right. There And there's, I hope I get this quote right. It was, I think Reed Hoffman, who was one of the founders of LinkedIn said something like, 
if you're not embarrassed by your first product launch, you've waited too long. So, you know, <laughs> which yeah, I think well, is really good. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that is an amazing, amazing saying, actually. And I think sometimes people have shown me as well, the first iteration of Amazon, this kind of absolutely shocking kind of yeah. website. And then you look at them today and it's like, well, yeah, you know what, there's, there's hope for all of us. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So Nathan, what I'd like to ask you about next is this, this whole thing about female founders and also, you know, minorities, because they're very, very underrepresented, aren't they, in terms Mm -hmm. of of actually acquiring capital or raising capital and acquire. So why is that is the big question. Oh, yeah. Gosh, that's that's a tough question. I mean, I think there's, you know, some of it's like kind of historical and systemic, I guess you could say. Some of it, it's hard to answer why. I mean, I know the actual percentage points of like the number of black and venture capitalists is, I want to say it's like 2% or some tiny, tiny fraction. I think female investors has actually, I saw some data around this recently. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's actually gone up quite a bit in the past like uh-huh. four years. Very dramatically, still pretty low. I want to I say, don't quote me, but it's in the maybe 15%, 20% range of, of VCs, you know, are female. So it's up from say 5%. Right? I mean, it's like gone up dramatically, but still quite low. So some of that's just things that are taking time to change. You know, I, I've had on our podcast quite a few, both female founders and, you know, persons of color. And we've asked that question a little bit, like, is it harder? And of course, it's hard for them to answer because they've never been a white person. <laughs> so yeah, it's hard to or, or, a, or a, like, a male. <laughs> or man, yeah. So it's, but sometimes it's actually been kind of interesting because, like, I think a few of the person of color folks we've had on the show they felt like there was a very strong support network and people were willing to help, you know, possibly to, to help write the, the balance or so, you know, so they felt like it was a pretty, pretty positive environment for them to raise capital. Now, keep in mind, there's a bias in our, in our data because I'm only interviewing people who successfully raise capital. Right. So, yeah. so there may be some, some bias in that, but I think there's even in the last like five, 10 years, I've seen a, huge number of female focused entrepreneurship groups, women's angels groups sprout up all across the country, all around the world. So I think I would almost put like, if there's a race, like the, the female support group is sort of way ahead. And then like persons of color, you know, are catching up, but I've seen a lot of new venture funds run by like black, black VCs just in the last two or three years. Right. I feel like the female capital raising initiative is like five to 10 years old. The the persons of color is like two to two to four years old, but it's catching up. So I think, you know, the, the bottom line is getting better for all parties involved, but still fairly low numbers overall. So take from that what you will. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah. I mean, I suppose I don't really know the reasons for that, as you said, otherwise, I mean, that there, there is obviously a historical, um, you know, context there, but it's good to know that it's improving anyway. Well, Nathan, I think we've come to the end of our interview together. So 
It has been such a pleasure and an honor to interview you this evening. I really, really enjoyed it. And I know we had a conversation beforehand about it's the middle of the morning over there. So you're all bright and energetic. And I have to say that I've been very energized by this interview. So I'm not kind of feeling all sleepy and dozy at all. But yeah, it's been fantastic. Thank you. So if somebody wanted to get in touch with you or to go and you know, check out your business, where should they go? Yeah, I definitely, if you're thinking about raising capital, love for you to check out Founder Suite. It's F-O-U-N-D-E-R-S-U-I-T-E.com. And if you want to reach out to me, it's Nathan at Foundersuite.com. Pretty easy to, to find on social handles on Twitter, where Twitter slash Foundersuite. Facebook is Facebook slash, you know, dot com slash Foundersuite. Plug two things really quick. We do have a great blog, blog blog.foundersuite.com, a lot of really good fundraising content. If you want to kind of go a deeper dive into raising capital and what it takes, get some advice, blog.foundersuite.com. And then the last thing I'll plug is our podcast, which is called How I Raised It. And Mm -hmm. you can find it on Spotify, iTunes. You should be able to find it on YouTube if you search for Foundersuite. But it's just interviews with founders really getting into the weeds on how they raise capital, like really getting into the nitty gritty, very tactical things they did. And it's very inspiring too, because like I mentioned, we have a huge number of, you know, female founders, people of color, people from all over the world, UK, Europe, even some crazy countries <laughs> that I had to look yeah, up on the map, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's fun and it's inspiring to just see all these different success stories of people, you know, being able to raise capital and how they did it. And you can learn a lot from it. So check out how I raised it. So that's all. Yeah. I got. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Nathan, for joining us tonight and look forward to seeing you again soon and releasing the episode. All right. Thank you, Jane. Appreciate it. listening in if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world i work one-to-one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives i also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients and if this is something you'd like to do too why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com slash masterclass and I'll show you how.